Are you out there? The voice came from inside the old trunk. A frantic pounding accompanied it. Ev, Ev, are you there? I can't hear you counting. It was Everett Drake's little sister, B. He had locked her in the trunk, daring her to escape in less than a minute. Ev, answer me. He didn't even hear her. The soggy London sky seeped rain like water from a sponge, spilling dreariness down the window panes and giving Everett an excuse to stay inside the vicarage reading. Vicarages are built to house ministers and their families. This one was especially drab, save for the turret some builder added as an afterthought. It was a bit like dressing up an ugly dog in a colorful sweater, and the effect was not entirely convincing. Still, the room at the top of the turret was just castle-like enough for all Everett and B's imagined escapades, and just enough removed from the rest of the residence to discourage the housekeeper, Mrs. Crimp, from monitoring their activities. Avoiding her attention was always preferable. This particular day, Everett sprawled out on the floor upstairs, chin resting in his hands, engrossed in one of his favorite comic books, Max Courageous Into Tomorrow. The daring adventurer Maximilian Courageous, or MC as Everett liked to call him, was piloting his ship through the galaxy to escape. The trunk lid flew open and B burst forth, hands above her head, cheeks flushed with exertion, and hair a defiant mess. Was that a record? She lowered her arms and eyed her brother with suspicion. You weren't even counting, were you? Ever since finding a biography of Harry Houdini at the library, B had been determined to learn the skills of an escape artist. Ambitious as that may be for an eight-year-old, she kept asking Everett to tie her shoes together or trap her in her room or lock her in the old trunk. There was a nice way to cheat when breaking out of the trunk because she was too smart to purposely trap herself anywhere. But her brother didn't need to know how she did it. She had developed her very own rules of escape, number one of which was to make your brother play his part. Despite her glowering, Everett didn't look up. Sorry, you didn't give me enough time. He tried to sound apologetic. I'm pretty sure that was your fastest yet. All in all, it had begun as a typical day in the vicarage. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, frequent purchaser of pens, and today we have a very special interview episode with J.D. Peabody, whose new middle grade novel, The Inkwell Chronicles, actually features the Oxford Inklings as prominent characters. J.D. Peabody is a pastor and has written in multiple genres, including nonfiction. The Inkwell Chronicles, released in September of 2022, is his first foray into children's literature. J.D., thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. It was a real pleasure to read your book. I'm really excited to talk about it, and uh, I, I just haven't, I haven't seen a book like this where, you know, where, where the Inklings are actual characters in in kind of a would you say this is a let's see i said middle grade novel is that how you'd characterize it or do you characterize the intended audience differently well it's really interesting because i would i would characterize it as middle grade but i also i kind of wrote it for myself and i think there's 
I, I wrote it with the adult reader of children's literature in in mind. So hey, that's me. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I I would say it's hopefully hopefully a broad audience. We'll see. Awesome, awesome. So um, what I'd like to do, I'm just going to ask you a few questions up front about your book, just to kind of establish for listeners and prospective readers what kind of a book it is and what what the what the world is like. It, in the book, what the characters are kind of like. And then I'd like to just talk to you generally about this book, about being an author and uh, some of the some of the themes and ideas in this book. So um, what's your book about? It's a story of a brother and sister, Everett and B, who find themselves somewhat unexpectedly on an adventure because there's been this terrible train crash that a train that their father was on and he's been presumed dead, but then his his body goes missing and they begin to suspect that actually it's because he's alive. And so they set out on a quest with some help to rescue him. And along the way, they encounter the Inklings and they encounter some some other characters and, and creatures of non-historic origin. And then they also encounter this ink that's a magical ink that they learn is behind all the creativity in the world and that also is in short supply. So they've got their work cut out for them to find their dad and, and help the ink. Yeah. I love that. And I, I love how you, how you tie the inklings within, within the world that you create the inklings, the, the like kind of informal group of, you know, Oxford scholars and authors become like kind of a secret society continuing this tradition of helping helping people write creative things, right? Despite the fact that there are forces of darkness after them trying to shut down creativity in general. What gave you the idea to to do that? Yeah, what what would what would make you think in your first book to do something as audacious as pulling in the, the inklings as as characters? I realized that that was asking for extra scrutiny kind of move. <laughs> To, it's to super do that. fun though it's really <laughs> well fun. and i i tried to be playful with it and you know not certainly come at it with great respect for who they were but also they're they're fictional versions of them so i didn't i didn't feel like i i had to tie it too closely to their actual personalities but yeah you know honestly i i first began writing this book back in 2015 and it was coming out of a season that was actually a pretty difficult time for me. I was really intensely battling anxiety. And eventually that led to a, a diagnosis of OCD. But I was really struggling and I needed a, I needed a space mentally for my brain to have something that was like playing in a sandbox. And and so this story for me really became my, my just, it was just a delight to write it. I just mm. wrote and, and went, okay, what would be fun? What would be fun for my inner 10 year old to, to read and, and for me to write. And so that was really my approach. It was very simple, just trying to write what was enjoyable to write. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's kind of similar to the way that Lewis anyway described his and Tolkien's process which is you know the the kind of books that we wanted to read weren't out there so we decided to write some of them ourselves yeah right well now. there were, I, I remember seeing an interview with who's the guy who's the head of Pixar or he oh, was I, it might have been uh, is it uh, Brad Bird 
Uh, sounds right. That sounds right. Anyway, he I, I watched a documentary on Pixar and he said, you know, we just decided that we wanted to make the movies we'd want to watch. And I was like, oh, that's brilliant. Yes. Yeah. Just just use that as your guideline. So that's yeah. that's how I went at it. Very cool. Very cool. So the main characters of this, like you said, are Everett, who seems to be like the main main character, right? He's the one whose yeah, head you yeah. get inside of the most. His little sister B, and and then their father Marcus. Do they have a last name, by the way? Drake is their Drake. Last name. Okay, that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the the Drakes. You were saying, I believe that even they, or or at least Marcus, their father, has some kind of historical basis, and I'm really I'm really interested to know who Marcus Drake is based on. Yeah, that was that was really fun for me to kind of dig into the story a little bit. Marcus Drake, being a a vicar who he's he's the one behind the the comic character Max Courageous that Everett is so into, which seems. Like if you were writing fiction, that is probably not the way, you know, the character you would come up with is this vicar who makes comic books. Yeah. But I I came across the story of a guy named Marcus Morris who was behind a series of comic books that started in England, I think in the in the 50s, my, probably actually the 40s, called The Eagle. And and he was he was a vicar who was also the editor of the anglican publication the anvil that hmm. lewis would write for yeah and so he had this connection with lewis and then he began this uh comic book called the eagle he really was kind of bothered by the vulgarity of the comics that he uh -huh. saw out there so he wanted to create something virtuous or, or that kind of held up some higher ideals for kids to read. And so so he started this and it became a really wildly popular comic book series that mm. if you if you were to ask kids from England from the 50s, they they would have been very familiar with that comic book series. But anyway, I thought the, it was it was it, called The Eagle. The Eagle, yeah. Okay, and Dan Dare, Dan Dare was the the main the, the pilot of tomorrow, I think he was called or something like that. Cool. And yeah, it, uh, it was pretty, I, as soon as I found the connection there between him and Lewis, I thought, oh, okay, this could, this could fit into this universe. And so that was, that was fun to kind of fictionalize him and kind of bury it down in the story. So you don't need to know that for anything. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was fun to to add it in there that is super neat though and it, and it definitely like adds to my there's so many little touches in this book where i'm sort of like oh wait is that something you're making up for the book or is that based on something which, which we'll get to some more of those later but uh, but yeah that's that's super cool and i was wondering about you know because we most of us think of well you had superman and batman in the you know 30s and then most of the comic book superheroes that we you know that we typically think of other than captain america are all like 1960s onward right it's really right. cool to hear about this you know one in the 50s that uh, that this max courageous character would have been based on that's that's really neat so turning to some less historical aspects of the world that you've created 
very quickly in the Inkwell Chronicles, the kids find themselves up against these creatures called blotters. What are the blotters? Yeah, the blotters are part of a, a whole class of creatures that were generated back in oh centuries ago. They're beings that were brought from the written page into the real world. And at the request of, well, it's, it's a long story to not tell the whole story, but they're from, from the fiction world and their sole aim in life is to destroy ink. That's kind of why I picked the name Blotters for them. I just thought they're, they're out to blot it out. Jack hesitated. My dear child. Some evils you didn't concern yourself with yet. Suffice it to say that blotters are deplorable creatures who... Everett stopped him. Wait, creatures? Are you saying they aren't human? Most of them can pass for human when they want. Are they elves? B asked. Ronald grunted in disgust. Blotters are nothing like elves, at least not, at least not light elves. More like chimera. Some even have wings. I thought they were Jotnar from Norse mythology until... He caught sight of Dot's exasperated grimace and turned his back toward her. Blotters are their own miserable breed, bent on ruin. Do they have superpowers? asked Edward. They are no comic book villains, if that's what you mean. Jack, you're more familiar with their background than I am. What can you tell us? Jack stuck his hands in his coat pockets and cleared his throat. <clears throat> During the Dark Ages, a nefarious king sought world domination. Expanding his power required a vast army. Be kicked at the dust. I don't like bad people, she muttered. The king learned that one bishop of Rouen in France possessed a rare ability with ink. This bishop not only wrote fantastic tales, he had translated some of his creations from the page to the real world. The bishop exercised his unusual gift, sparingly and with great caution. But the king viewed him only as the secret weapon he needed. He arranged an audience with the bishop, pretending to bring a spiritual request. He commissioned the bishop to write a story with the most evil creatures imaginable. The king said he wanted a work to frighten the masses away from their wickedness. Initially, the wary bishop hesitated, but the king would not relent until he wrote it. It was a terrible tale, Ronald exclaimed, menacing ogres and fearsome giants and schools of sea serpents. Then there were the malignous macula, Blotters. Why, one of them... Enough, Ron, scolded Dot as she saw Bee scooting closer to her brother. What were you saying, Jack? Jack continued. When the story was complete, the king revealed his true intentions, insisting that all the horrid creatures be brought to life. The bishop refused, but the king tortured the poor man until he broke. Blotters and the other fiends poured from the realm of imagination to our world. Then the king threw the bishop in a dungeon for the rest of his days. I'm glad he was locked up, B said fiercely. He sure made a mess with his words. True, Dot agreed. But he also created glimmers of hope. Fearing the king would misuse the story, he secretly wrote in three safeguards. First, he made it so that blotters and the others cannot come in contact with ink. If ink touches their skin, they are encased in stone. Gargoyles, said Ronald, striking a pose. Everett shuddered. Wait, the gargoyles on top of our church, they were blotters once? That brings up protection number two, said Dot. 
Being a man of the cloth, the bishop wrote in a rule that all houses of worship would be sanctuaries for anyone fleeing the creatures. Blotters, even attempting to enter such a place, instantly become encased as gargoyles. Let's talk about the ink then. Yeah. This seems to be like kind of the central, you know, in the way that like the central conceit of Harry Potter is there are still wizards and they go to a school, right? Right, right. right. The central idea of yours is there's this ink, right? Right, right. So can you tell me a bit about that? Yes. So the ink itself, you know, you can find it in diluted forms in probably in regular ink, but, but really... The ink is credited with being behind all the great creative works ever produced, whatever the field. And so it's it's like the the spark that kind of releases the the creativity within the person using it. So it's 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 very personalized in that sense, but it's also available to anybody, but it can only be used for good. And so so it's. The blotters can't use it because they can't create anything. So, so, but there, there are also human enemies who are out to get it because they think they want to control it because they figure if they, if they had it, they could, they could make money on it. And so, so yeah, so it's, it's seen as a commodity by some people and then, but it's actually, that's not what it is. So I don't know if that gives you enough. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Part of the, uh, part of the thing that, that sort of, starts everything here is their father goes off to get a bottle of ink from yeah this well and it's the called the ink of elspeth yes which is the 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 technical title of your book the subtitle of your book yeah i guess no. it 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 would be the the first the name of the first and what are you the first book in the series so, yeah, yeah 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 and and he's He's on a train ride back, and as you said, he, you know, because he's got the ink out, some of these blotters can smell it, and they're they come after him and end up wrecking his train, right? Yeah, which is interesting for a whole lot of other reasons, and I want to get to those, but but for the for the purposes of the plot, that that seems to be, you know, this this is this is the MacGuffin of the of the whole book, right? But it's also kind of a parable about creativity yeah. and, and right, right. Why, uh, why creativity matters. And, uh, and, and lo- like you said, you know, you can't use really the ink for anything evil, right? Uh, because, because the enemy can't create. Right, right. It's, it's fun that, th- that this does work as a, as a kind of parable about creativity at the same time that it works. It's just like a good old fashioned, you know, children's story as well. Yeah. Um, did you, did you catch that Elspeth was a, a real person? When you were, I don't know if you noticed when you were reading it, but but she she actually is the mother of the theologian P.T. Forsyth. Oh. So and she she and her husband really did take in as a college student of the border George McDonald. So oh, that's cool. Um, so that was fun to also then have have her be passing along the ink to him, and so for his writing, making him an inkling of an earlier generation, and so. So that was yeah, that was kind of a fun yeah. little really deep dive for for me to. <laughs> I figured her. yeah, I figured she was because because you, you mentioned in in the in the book as well. You know, he George McDonald had been had had 
you know, met at her house or, or stayed at her house or something like that. And I figured yeah. she must be a, yeah, a, yeah. a real person, was... but I'd never heard of her before. But uh, that's that's really neat. This is the last, by the way, in the book. There are, there are a number of different ink wells, right? And you have a lot of fun right. with, with a lot of this terminology involving ink, right? So, so these wells are, are almost like oil wells, right? Right, it's right. Like they, they provide sources of creativity. And this is the last ink well that the blotters haven't kind of dried up, right? So once this right, is done, right. all creativity is gone. Right. Uh, at least in terms of creative things that, that use ink, right? Right, right. Uh, so this is a battle to save, or this becomes a battle from, from being a, a battle to save their father who's at first presumed dead and then you know they realize he's just been kidnapped by the blotters this goes to being a fight to save the the well right the right gavelspet is but yeah i love i love this kind of weaving of you know of, of the actual details of these authors lives with this this just sort of fun adventure story And, and of course, featuring very prominently, and I was very excited when I first saw the, you know, the word dot in your book uh, yeah. you in the beginning. So, so dot, Jack and Ronald are featured in this book. Can you tell me a bit about them? Yeah. And I, you know, I wanted it, I, I wanted their presence to be both clear for those who would recognize them and also that people who who didn't catch it could still enjoy it i would say this this book really was a, a labor of love in response to the influence of the chronicles of narnia on on my life and so i had known about the inklings for a long time particularly cs lewis was really the the most influential of them for me but yeah, I I began to think, well, what if what if that whole association was not just to get together and help each other write, but what if there was a, a greater purpose at play there that was kind of behind the scenes that maybe most people didn't know about? And so began to just play play with that a little bit. And so so they become actually some of the heroes in the story and kind of fill in some of the the background on ink for for Everett and B as they're going along, yeah. and then they they actually journey with them, which was which was really fun. Yeah, and I tried yeah. to kind of give a, a a playful relationship between the three of them, especially yeah. between Dot and Ronald. And, right. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, Dot and Ro Dot does not seem to like Ronald all that much, which is which is very believable. Like I I could imagine, or I I'm not I'm not aware of any actual you know. <laughs> interaction between Dorothy Sayers and and, and, uh, and Tolkien but they seem to be sniping at each other a lot or she snipes at him anyway which but you totally kind of get this sense. affection underneath the yeah. surface like you know almost like when when kids in junior high like each other but they fight you know like mm -hmm. or they're you know how do you know a a girl has a crush on you is because she's mean to you you know that sort of thing almost right and, uh, right there's there's yeah so I tried to I tried to create the undercurrent that was saying no actually she really does like him but but he frustrates her and 
and so yeah they they have a, a kind of a fun dynamic yeah but who knows what <laughs> what it was really like in real life between them but. yeah yeah well i love that you kind of transform the inklings into action heroes which you would never expect them to be but uh yeah and dot's driving along in her motorcycle with a sidecar and 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 of course there's there's the giant pigeon who will right right we'll talk about but uh, yeah it's just super fun a really a really enjoyable sort of imagined dynamic um and, and you know you mentioned that you know it's taking it's taking some liberties with the with the actual purpose of the inklings which was to encourage each other in writing but within the world of the book the purpose of the entire endeavor and the big fancy action plot is to allow people to write right and then yeah. to allow yeah. people to be creative right which is exactly yeah. what the inklings did anyway it's yep. just yep. in a in a less sort of obviously dynamic way in real life right right uh, but, right but this kind of this kind of dramatizes that process of, of trying to free people up to be creative which uh, does it in a, a really enjoyable way and you also mentioned there there's a character early on who helps marcus when he's wounded from the train accident and then comes in again at the end and her name's nurse abby can you hear me sir the voice sounded distant and muffled. Marcus opened his eyes to see the concerned face of an American Air Force nurse. She looked slightly blurry and he realized his glasses were filthy. What was going on? Why was his head throbbing? And why was he on a gurney? There's been an accident. Do you know where you are? Marcus tried to shake the haze from his brain. I would have said London, but you're American. She laughed, relieved to get a response. London's right. I'm stationed at the American Air Force Hospital. We're the nearest medical facility. She held his face still, looking into first one eye, then the other. Can you tell me what day it is? Marcus scanned his memory. Tuesday. No, Wednesday, October 8th, 1952. The nurse took a tube of lipstick and used it to draw a large X on his forehead. Sorry, it's all I have to write with. This will tell the doctors which patients have been seen. Don't wipe it off. I'll be back to check on you soon. And with that, she was gone. Lying on the stretcher, Marcus suddenly found the entire day rushing back, the train, the horrific jolt sending him airborne, the unbearable screech of metal scraping against metal. His briefcase! He felt around on the gurney, but there was nothing. He pulled himself up to a sitting position, only to nearly pass out with the effort. He collapsed back down. Catching his breath, he rolled to the side and looked toward the train. What he saw was a heap of twisted black metal piled up behind an engine, which was perched on its nose and leaning precariously over a sideways passenger car of another train. The platform looked like a war zone, with dozens of wounded and dazed passengers in makeshift triage. Wreckage was everywhere. She seems to have some sort of healing powers. By, by the way, listeners, the ink does not behave the same way for everyone, right? And different people mm -hmm. seem to have different gifts and, and abilities. And it's a little bit like the Holy Spirit in that way, right? Right. Where they're, they're just a different um, 
things that people can do. She seems to be able to heal people with ink. And and you mentioned JD that you know she she has some sort of historical basis. I'm also curious about that. Yeah. Well, first, just in in reference to the ink, tried to play on the the multiple aspects of creativity beyond beyond just simply using the ink for writing. It can it has all these other things. And like you said, there there's a, there's an easy picture association with the the Holy Spirit. I think in in a lot of it. But but yeah, Nurse Abby was really fun for me to learn about her story because and we'll talk about maybe we'll talk about the the train accident a little bit later as because that kind of fits in with my connection with the chronicles but but she was on the scene there was this there was this horrific train wreck in London in 1952 that really happened and it was the it was the worst peacetime train crash in their history still to this day. And it, we just actually passed the 70 year anniversary mark mm. of that in October. But, but she was an American nurse, um, American air force nurse who was stationed there and was one of the first people on the scene. She really is seen as, as one of the people who um, developed triage in its initial Oh, wow. um, or initial days of like what she did there that day is is still influential on emergency medicine and and especially mass casualty kind of incidents. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, and she was African-American. She was a woman in the military. And so she had already overcome all these hurdles. In fact, when when she joined the military, she had to join the army first because the Air Force wouldn't accept women, I don't think at the time. Hmm. But anyway, I just learning about her story and what a pioneer she was. And then after the book was written, I was able to get in touch with a relative of hers who had actually lived, lived with her growing up and who is now a nurse herself. And she had all kinds of great detail and stories. And I, I, you know, it just was like meeting a celebrity to finally get to talk to somebody who actually knew the real nurse Abby and to be able to kind of memorialize her story a little bit when it, you know, she, she was the kind of person who didn't really draw attention to herself and, and, you know, not, not somebody that you hear much about, but really made this major contribution to the world. And so it was, it was fun to be able to kind of extend her story a little bit. That is really cool. It's really cool. Is she going to end up being a regular character in the Inkwell Chronicles generally? Are you allowed to give away uh, that sort of information? Or is she You know um, what? She she does book? not she's she's mentioned briefly in, in book two, but hasn't come back into it yet. That's an interesting question whether she would reappear. I had somebody tell me they really wanted her to to marry <laughs> the kid's dad. Yeah. I, I mean, I was wondering about that. Just probably <laughs> I've watched too many Hallmark Christmas movies or something like that. Yeah. I, like the I, single uh, dad and the single thought about that, but because, because she was a real person, I thought, well, I, yeah. I can't really make that happen. Yeah. That makes but, it hard. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. but yeah, it's interesting because she, she could, she could potentially, if they, maybe they'll make it to America in book three and yeah. Then they could 
bump into her. So let's let's go back to the to the train accident because I do want to sure. hear about about this. And yeah, like bells started going off when you mentioned the train accident because of course that's how yeah. the Pevensey kids San Susan die, right? Right, right. Uh, in the last battle and then go to Aslan's country and here you have another character who seems like maybe they're dead and then they end up not being. Yeah. Yeah, what's going on with the train accident? Okay, so really, I have to go back further. I have to go back to Prince Caspian because when I was when I was ten, my parents my parents got me Prince Caspian. That was the first that was the first book in the series that they got me. I, so I started reading it out of sequence. I didn't start with Oh, interesting. Flying the Witch in the Wardrobe, yeah. and but I was completely transported. It was the first time that I can remember reading a book and just completely losing myself. And when, you know, you kind of come back to reality and you look around and you go, Oh, I'm here. You know, it it was really an impactful book for me just because of that was my, that was my introduction. And so, so that really shaped my, my love of reading and so then when I went to think about what I would want to write myself, then of course I go back to the Chronicles and and I remembered in The Magician's Nephew, there being those green and yellow rings, the green would take them out to another world and the yellow would bring them back. And then at the end of the story, they had all these leftover rings that they buried out underneath the tree. Hmm. And I so my my first thought for a story was, oh, wouldn't it be cool if somebody 50 years later moved into that house, was out digging in the yard, dug up these rings, didn't know what they were. And all of a sudden they go to one of the many other world, other pools in the wood between the worlds, you know, or whatever, yeah. and had a whole different set of adventures there. And I thought, oh, that's, that would be kind of fun. You know, and I, obviously that's kind of hijacking somebody else's idea and, and running with it. But I, I thought, oh, I wonder if there's something there. And then, yeah, and then I was like, I went back to the last battle and heard that they actually did dig up the rings and took them with them on the train. Oh yeah. And, and so I was like, Oh shoot, there goes that idea. But then, but then thinking about that train accident, I somehow that started me thinking about, you know, I wonder if there was actually a real train accident that happened back at the time Lewis was writing and, and my hunch, I don't know this for a fact, but that was such a significant train crash that I would imagine this was very much on his mind at the time that he wrote it. And they never did come up with to this day. They, they don't know the cause of that Hmm. crash. So I thought, well, I could, I could maybe imagine a, a fictional cause for what happened here and we could, go from there. So in a in a way then the the train crash in the last battle really gets credit for kind of the start of this of this book. Yeah, yeah. No, that's super cool. I was I I probably wrote in the margin like did did Marcus Drake kill Peter Susan or Peter <laughs> Lucy? <laughs> uh, oh, I hope and, not. and of course he didn't, but the people who were after him you know caused the the, the train the right train. right uh, no that's really fun and there are so many things by the way 
listeners, there's so many things like that, little Easter eggs that don't necessarily like, even if, you know, even if the person reading this, this book is unaware of Inkling stuff or unaware of the Chronicles of Narnia, which, which they shouldn't be, but even if they are, they'll be able to enjoy this, but there's that extra level of enjoyment of these little touches that, that we have, like Turkish delight, for example, which, right. which Ronald gives to to be right or, or the fact that b can hear the ink right that she mm. has these powers of perception that make her to me anyway quite similar to to lucy in, in some mm-hmm. ways to this phenomenon called encasement which is awfully a lot like being turned to stone sure except it's wielded by the good guys this time which is uh, which is which is interesting but uh, yeah it's uh it's 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 got so many so many little things that you know when, as i was reading them and they enhanced my enjoyment making references but not too over over the top or not too heavy-handed to some of the inklings work it's been it's been interesting going to schools to do some visits and when i mentioned the chronicles of narnia i think i i assumed that there would be far more awareness of, of it and and a lot of kids that's that's just not in their repertoire as much today even because i i thought a lot of them would have seen the movies but realized that oh yeah now a lot of the a lot yeah. of the younger kids that's that was before their time it's even. been a while so, yeah yeah so it, it's just interesting so it's been it's been fun to introduce the the chronicles to them but yeah i was i was surprised and and yes, I, it's not surprising because you know, there's such a glut of middle grade literature out there. But hopefully it seems like it's not a necessary requirement to enjoy the story, but it sure was right. fun for me. I mean, that was half the fun of writing. It was to yeah. like more little hidden gems in there. Yeah. What do they teach them at these schools, right? <laughs> So, so your main character, as I said before, is is Everett Drake, and uh, his main sort of conflict, obviously, number one, is his his dad's been taken, right, and he he thinks that his dad's been been killed, but also, you know, he has this internal conflict where he, you know, it's it seems like everyone else is special except for him, um, right, and, and I I I loved that, I. I I love that also in like he 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 engages in some sort of Edmund like behavior where he sort of puts his sister down and things like that but it it makes so much psychological sense with him as opposed to like in the line of which wardrobe Edmund's just a little jerk right right, right. <laughs> but but Everett he's alternately kind of annoyed with his sister and then is kind to her again and then gets annoyed with her again and gets annoyed with himself for putting her down it's much more like the actual dynamic I see between mm-hmm. my kids than most of what I see in the Chronicles. As they headed back, Everett felt another twinge of guilt over how impatient he'd acted with his little sister. You've really been brave today, B. Do you think so? She brightened at the thought, skipping along beside him. I like the slide pop best. It wasn't scary at all. They had reached the hatch to the well when Everett stopped. Shh! Do you hear that? Bee strained her ears. There was a faint gurgling off in the distance straight ahead of them, farther down the tunnel. 
It sounds like the creek by our house, she gasped. I got what I asked for. Let's go. Everett found himself feeling irritable again. B hadn't made anything appear. Water doesn't suddenly materialize. Dot needs these splints. Let's go back. B would have none of it. We're supposed to get water. She grabbed his hand, tugging him behind her. Everett clenched his teeth. We don't even have a cup to collect any. B dropped his hand and raced down the unexplored section of tunnel beyond the well. We're so close. It's getting louder. Everett deliberately dragged his feet as his sister skipped happily around a curve in the bluish light of the tunnel. Somehow, the cheerier her actions, the darker his mood became. He knew it was childish, but he didn't care. He didn't want to reach the water. Why should B get to be right all the time? He slowed to a full stop and waited. She never liked being by herself. She would come running back soon. Her shrill, terrified scream changed his mind. Everett dropped the bag and ran toward his sister. As he rounded the bend, the tunnel widened into a cavern where two sights stopped him cold. The first was the source of the sound they had heard, a small waterfall pouring out of a boulder and into a deep chasm. The second sight was B. She was standing on the boulder above the waterfall, pressed up against the cavern wall. Below her, a black wolf snapped and snarled at her, bits of foam flying from its mouth. I was just wondering, yeah, what, what made you decide on that dynamic for the main character? And, and, and what, what made you, you know, think of Everett? Yeah, well, Everett, Everett's interesting for me because the, the writing process itself, I was, I was going through the same thing of Everett, of finding my own voice as I was writing. And so it was a really, really lengthy process for me and especially I, I I had two different agents for the book. The first agent kind of things, things ended there, but, but went through a lot of editing with her. There were points at which I had to really wrestle with, am I just making these changes because it's being asked of me or is this really mm. what I want to say? And so it, there's sort of a, a very personal tie-in for me with Everett's kind of finding his own way and and me finding my own way as a writer and not really sure at the beginning what was my voice, but really coming out the other end going, oh yeah, no, I I know how I would say that or how I wouldn't say it now. And I think his his character, it was really interesting too, because initially the first early drafts Really, it was the adults driving all the action in the story, mm. and and Everett was more watching the Inklings or watching the Fomentori make things happen, and so he yeah. he moved more into being the primary actor with each edit, and and so I'm sure there's psychological stuff there for me as well, but just yeah, kind of. The whole thing of finding yourself, I think, was was an interesting thing for me to f- experience in real time as I was creating the character. Yeah, yeah. And that works so well with this as being a kind of, um, you know, as dealing so much with creativity, right? And and, and mm-hmm. the ink itself, it's, it's magical, you know, the way that like, you know, their pens are magical, sort of in the way that like wands are magical yeah. in Harry Potter or, or whatever else. But, but the ink is... The ink has a has a the distinctive property of being both the medium and the 
inspiration of right, uh, right. Of, of creativity, right? Everett, Everett's kind of, he's got a unique relationship to the ink because he can't actually write himself with it. Yeah, you know, right. he can, he can find it and he can sense it and, and he, but he, he has this different kind of relationship, which was also interesting because I never thought I could write a book. You know, I did a lot of writing for a lot of different settings. I was in advertising for years and, and I always thought, well, I, I can only write short form things. You know, I can mm -hmm. only write 30 second ads or, you know, a paragraph of copy. So to, to have, to come up with a total arc for a whole book felt like beyond me. So, yeah. So that that struggle of Everett's to have even figuring out how how to even use the ink is is interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, it works really well in a in a book that is kind of about creativity. And I also really like how I mean, you can't you know in in, in young adult fiction or middle grade fiction, you can't shake the influence of J.K. Rowling and of Harry Potter. Mm. Like it's just everywhere. What I love about this character is that he's almost like an anti-Potter. Um, mm. because Harry Potter's just good at everything he tries to right. do, you know, there's, there's like <laughs> right, a certain right. amount of like wish fulfillment with, with him and with Everett. It's much more the way I remember being as mm. a child, right. Which, which wasn't yeah. like, Oh, I, I better watch out that I don't become too arrogant and think I can do everything because I'm just the best, you know, but right, rather right. like, Oh, my younger sibling is better than me at this too. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. I'm never going to do this or I'm never going to do it and to a certain extent. You know, that's, that's still how I deal right mm -hmm. with, with, with being unable to do things that I want to do or, or being different from people or whatever. So I think this is a, a good corrective to mm. what I think many of the protagonists mm. in, in in middle grade fiction are, which which are you know, oh yeah, I can do everything. I'm really great. Yeah. Um, Did you ever read any John Christopher books? I don't think so. Younger. I mean, he he was he was maybe more more in the 60s and early 70s. I mean, he he wrote into the 80s as well, but but he wrote kind of some dystopian middle grade young adult literature that was he he would have those main characters that were not really any special talent or you know mm. they were just your average kind of person in in extraordinary circumstances and i really liked i really liked his writing and that's interesting to to note that that quite often yeah the the tendency in middle grade literature is to you know almost superpowers for the yeah. for the kids well, so. we want, you know, we want to escape our own, you know, our, our For own sure. sense of worthlessness yeah. and yeah. we do it, we do it through, you know, through finding a character to identify who's the best or the promised one or some sort right. of messiah right. or something like that. And uh, Everett's main struggle seems to be, I'm, I'm really not, I'm just normal. I find him a really, a really interesting protagonist, really believable as well. You mentioned some of the difficulty in writing uh, as well as in having your book edited. Edited. What's the story of conceiving of this book? Of, yeah. Of kind of working through it and, and, and finally getting it published. Yeah. It, it was really a long 
long process. Like I said, I didn't think I had a book in me. I had I had made attempts at short stories or maybe even maybe even a book early on when I was young and didn't know any better and but mm-hmm. but didn't didn't get very far because I really just had kind of this block for going, oh, I've gotta I've gotta have a whole story arc before I can do this. And then I ended up writing a screenplay that that I was sort of adapting from some other work on on the life of George Mueller. And cool. I, and you know, I really enjoyed it. It was super fun and and I was able to get an entire script written and you know writing a movie script is great because it's you know exactly that it's going to be about 120 pages mm-hmm. for a full-length script and there's hardly any words on a page so as you're yeah. writing it you feel you feel this sense of accomplishment because you can crank out three pages in a sitting easily you right. know or whatever and so yeah. so that kind of gave me some confidence to get that completed as a project and and go oh okay Maybe I could try something. And then there was, I read something by Eugene Peterson in his biography that talked about, he he talked about his writing as writing heuristically. And I'd never heard that mm. word before, but that, that idea of writing to discover, like yeah. you don't have an outline ahead of time. You, you write and you find out where you're going as you're, and I was like, oh, that's how I think. Like, that's that's how I write my sermons. I don't write an outline first. I start in and see where it it takes me. And so I thought, yeah. okay, well, what if I have an idea for a beginning of a story? And and actually, I kind of had a thought for the very end, and I, but I just didn't know any any of the sequence in between. So I thought, well, I'm just going to write as far as I know, and get one chapter done. And then by the end of that chapter, I would kind of have an idea of what I would want for the next. And so that's kind of yeah. how the book took shape which which was great but then you get to the end and and i thought it was great but mm-hmm. it it uh, it didn't necessarily have flow or anything but i was right. super excited just at having accomplished it and so i started sending it out to agents right away and and i proceeded to get a whole series of rejections yep. and i i ended up literally with over 100 agents turning me down saying no Oof. not for me no thank you but a few of them were really gracious and kind along the way and gave me enough feedback to actually be able to go oh i see what they're saying and i yeah. can i can change it and so i just kept tweaking it and tweaking it and tweaking it and then i'd send out a few more and get a few more rejections and and then finally i had one agent who said yes to it and so I was with her for about a year and a half and she just took me to the woodshed and, <laughs> and really, I mean, it was brutal and, <laughs> and good in the good. Cause like, you know, children's children's fiction is its whole own world. And I had, yeah. I really had no business doing, I was, I was completely naive about it, which was, you know, both good because I, <laughs> I could actually put it out there not knowing how right. bad it was. But then I I couldn't get better till I got that kind of input and yeah and then we we ended up parting ways, but but the work that she helped me do on it was what got it to a place where the agent that I got after that 
was interested in it. And then it was a mm. whole two more years of editing with him. Mm. And then he sent it out to, I think, at least 35 publishers, all of whom rejected it. Uh-huh. You know, and and then finally one who said, yeah, we love this. And so that's great. So, yeah, it was a really, really lengthy process. And now, you know, book two has been six months from conception to uh, hand off to the publisher. Wow. Like that's a whole different thing. But but also the universe was all built at this point. And so, yeah that that just made a world of difference and and you know all the editing and all the work on book one was paid off to make book two faster so yeah yeah can can you divulge any oh details sure about book two or what's, yeah we we still uh, yeah we still end up with everett and b dot is is not on the scene jack and ronald are in and out of it at different places dot may return down the line but she's she's really not much in this one Hmm. they they go a little further afield they they end up in krakatoa actually oh wow if there's a little bit of a tie-in to the book 21 balloons if you are familiar with i'm not that which is another kind of archaic you know i it, it was interesting to go okay if I'm going to make references to children's literature, or anything, it's got to be historic. Like I, I can't, I can't do contemporary, you know, they right, can't, yeah. they can't have time. So, so probably most kids won't, won't find the little tie-ins all that relatable. Cause you know, Pippi Longstocking, you know, things like, like that are in there that, would would have been appropriate for Everett and B to be aware of. Well, my um, kids know Pippi Longstock. Okay, there you go. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, a- Astrid make makes a brief appearance there. Very so, cool. Very cool. So that's fun. So yeah, it was fun to it was kind of fun to expand the the references and try to do some of the same things of hiding some things within it. And but yeah, they go they kind of do a a worldwide tour on the. And I'm sorry because I know you're not a pigeon fan, but they <laughs> they 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 go for a long flight on Ermagard. So. Very cool, very cool. Yeah, I mean Ermagard seems like a seems like a decent enough pigeon as <laughs> as, as pigeons go. I have an odd fear of birds, and pigeons just seem like flying rats to me. Like I'm, I mean, yeah. you're not wrong. Yeah, but but I can I can appreciate the the fact that. Ermengarde, the giant semi-visible pigeon, is special. A tremendous crashing sound came from the shrub on the far side of the church. The children could see the tops of the trees swaying above the roof. They both jumped back as an enormous gray feathered head peeked out from halfway up the side of the church, two giant eyes peering at them quizzically. Then the rest of the big bird's body tottered out a frightening size. Fortunately, its face had a gentle kindness that offset the scariness. Ah, there you are, Ermengarde, said Osgood. No one would ever think it possible to lose track of this girl's whereabouts, but she's got a knack for making herself invisible. He took the large seeds from B and handed them to Ermengarde. As she bent to pluck them from his hands, Everett stepped forward to shield B from the gargantuan beak. Up close, he could see her feathers had tiny crosshatch lines like pen marks. How is she so big? 
The courier looked up at Ermengarde. This old girl flew straight out of a book. I take it you've heard of Peter and Wendy. Everett scowled. There's no giant pigeon in that story. I told James, Mr. Barry that is, I told him she didn't fit, said Osgood, patting the bird affectionately. But he liked her too much to just unwrite her, so he begged me to deliver her from the pages and find her a new home. A bit of a rare feat, but we did it. B pushed out from behind her brother and pointed to the tag hanging down from Ermengarde's neck. The inscription read, I belong to D.L. Sayers. An address in Oxford was printed below. Oxford, B said. Daddy goes to Oxford all the time. Maybe that's where he is. Ermengarde could take him a message. Everett was about to set B straight when the bird's head lifted skyward. She tilted it to one side and gave an alarmed cluck. They're coming! Osgood rushed the children round to her side. Strapped onto the pigeon's back was a wicker gondola, such as you might see dangling under a hot air balloon except larger. A rope ladder hung over the edge and down Ermengarde's side, reaching to the ground. Hurry, children! Up you go! It kind of... It kind of had to be a pigeon in my mind because you know osgood is a courier and so yeah his one of his m methods of communication is with pigeon post so yeah yeah so that was that was kind of how the the thinking went to get her in the picture you find so many fun sort of ways to get them to travel from one place to another right every time they have to go someplace next right. you just think of some new like completely <laughs> wacky you know different way to to get from one place to another and they're they're so much fun to read did Ermengarde the pigeon come from any place in particular other than you know well, just your own imagination well i uh, i have her her origin story being that she was taken out of Peter Pan and Wendy or Peter and Wendy by Barry. Yeah. So she was in an early draft of the book and then he, he liked her, but she didn't fit in the story. So right. they removed her, but he couldn't kill her off because he liked her too much. So he asked Osgood to like find a new home for her. So, yeah. but as far as I know, he didn't really have her in an early draft, but. <laughs> Peter and Wendy, I've got to say is one of my favorite children's mm. novels. It's, it's, he's so, so clever fantastic. yeah and the and the the narration is yeah beautiful and hilarious and and dark you mentioned the chronicles of narnia were there specific chronicles or or other works by the inklings that mm -hmm. like especially served as inspiration to you as you were writing them? Yeah. so i'm trying to think especially you know i i mentioned about prince caspian really being such a such a book that captured my imagination and so i i think i think some of the treatment of b really probably does parallel some of the things with lucy and you'll see that a little bit in book two as well as trees are really a prominent theme in book two. Oh, and, fun and you know that i guess could go both towards tolkien and and lewis but yeah, I, I mean, I've always been inspired by a lot of different things that that Lewis has written, both in his nonfiction and his his fiction. You know, I, I when I go to school visits, I I use his quote and I don't I don't even know where it came from about you can make anything by writing. 
because I, I go, you know, the first thing you make by writing is a writer. And yeah, so I, I encourage kids to be inspired by that, to, to take it up for themselves. But yeah, you know, I, I think I, I have, I have Ronald speak a little Elvish in there, mm-hmm. have, have drop a line in there. And, and I do have Jack making a little reference to deeper magic from before the dawn of time. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't really read a lot of the, the Peter Whimsey. Yeah. Mysteries. I haven't either actually. And, and so I'm, yeah. I'd like to now, I, and you know, she, she was so brilliant with her theological writing. Yeah. It's, it's, Did- masterful did, did you ever read I, I don't know if i ever finished it but did you ever read the mind of the maker i i'm like you i started it i don't i did not finish it but but what i loved about it was her absolute like confidence or just a sense of if you were if you were not of the same mind as what she was saying <laughs> you you were <laughs> you're intelligence was questionable yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. I, she owned the room it seems like you know and just she just seems like a a brilliant character <laughs> yeah i love that you brought her in and she's such a good counterweight to the other two oxford inklings that that, that you get to me this you know it, it is very much obviously it's in the genre right of of, of middle grade fiction right now which is which is, it should be but places where I saw sort of similarities, and I don't even know if you're familiar with, with, with some of these works, but it reminded me, because it's set in kind of post-World War II England, right, mm. um, rather than some like fantasy realm like Narnia or, or Middle Earth, even though Middle Earth is like technically our world and the deep, deep past or whatever, it's still kind of like another fantasy world. But this is set in, you know, modern, quote unquote, day, right? And it reminded me a lot of a kind of if, if Charles Williams had like sat down to write a um, one of his thrillers for, you know, for for a younger audience, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a lot less creepy than anything Charles Williams wrote, mm-hmm. but but it's 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 got this sort of just very dynamic quality to it and and is and is concerned with a a sort of magical MacGuffin right that has Mm. that has qualities to it that are that are inherently mystical so it really yeah to to me it felt more like a Charles Williams novel Mm. except it's easier to understand than the Charles Williams novels usually yeah that's new to me I like I I need to go back and 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 read that because yeah that there it wasn't it wasn't wasn't anything like yeah there there was no link for me obvious like yeah yeah uh, intentionally yeah um, but yeah, i did well, oh go ahead no you go ahead oh i just was going to say I, I i was thinking back to your your question about some of the inklings influences and i i did you know there's a brief little song introduced about Edfrith um mm-hmm. that that Trey sings tentatively he began his voice a bit shaky at first but growing stronger with each line when Edfrith sailed to Lindisfarne his holy book to write despaired his heart he ne'er could start 
for lo, his quill was dry, oh ho, for lo, his quill was dry. The monkey rose and traveled far to reach the river Dee, where ink lay hid neath shadowy lid, below the current deep, oh ho, below the current deep. Then back went he to Lindisfarne, his burrow filled to brim, began the saint to scribe and paint, and joy came flooding in, oh ho, and joy came flooding in. That that was that was kind of a, a little nod to Tolkien's, you know, dropping in the little musical numbers that, you know, yeah. that that it's it's like something that existed in this other world. Yeah. That that didn't really, you know, and and so but also Edith was a real a real character as well. So that was fun right. to, you know, kind of layer that up a bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I loved I loved that little song and it did give it did give a sense of like kind of texture, right? Mm-hmm. As did um and I want to get back to the question of influences and 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 just authors yeah. that you like as well. But 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 as did the kind of origin myth of these blotters, right? Mm-hmm. And, and oh right, uh, right. The the story of the bishop of my wife used uh, to, Ro, Rowan, I think. Yeah, is, I don't. My, I don't know how so you say it. My wife lived in this little town in France, and she always pronounces it in a way that I can't pronounce. But it's always like Juan or something oh. like that. And I she lived there. It. Yeah, she did. She That's did amazing for for a few months anyway. But uh, but but yeah, I loved that it kind of originated there because there's so much stuff that came from Rouen or however yeah, you want to say. Yeah. It. Including, you know, it was, it was a it was a place where the Gothic style of architecture really yes. formed. Which, of course, like the blotters in your world, the reason we have gargoyles is because when blotters try to chase people into churches and they touch the church, the holy ground, ground they become encased with ink, yeah. right, and, yeah. and turn into yeah. stone, right. So all these gargoyles all over Gothic architecture are are blotters that that you know were, were turned to stone which is just great and, and you mentioned that the i think it was a bishop of Rouen and yeah. the king yeah. was that based on anything historical or, or yeah or, yeah actually well not historical but mythical i guess because yeah. this this bishop supposedly had battled the, in real life, not in the story, the, mm-hmm. this bishop had supposedly battled a dragon and cut off its head. And that had become the first, I, I think, the first gargoyle on the church or something. There, How do I not is, know this story? This is, yeah, this, I don't know. This is a I mean, travesty I that I do not know this. I, I want uh, I want to hear more about it. it uh, it's probably, it's, I'm probably botching it here. No, but, I doubt um, it. I doubt it. There are many. But that's where that know. came from, because I had never, uh, I'd never heard of wrong before but oh my gosh that is awesome that that Um, was so that that that's what gave me my my gargoyle connection and and uh i i love that you give it these sort of medieval roots right which 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 works so well with who the inklings are you know the the oxford inklings and and how many of them are 
you know, medievalists or at least interested in medieval things. But, but yeah, that's, that's, that's just so much fun. What other books were you influenced by authors who are not necessarily inklings, right? But mm. who you view nevertheless, you know, because you, you, you kind of make the inklings, the group of the inklings much, much bigger, right? Than right, actually right. Like anybody who did anything yes. creatively basically is yeah. an inkling, which, which, which I kind of love. Who, who are some of the other influences for you for this book who maybe are not part of the, you know, official Oxford group of the inklings? Yeah, I I mentioned John Christopher, who mm-hmm. when I was when I was a kid, that was that was probably who I read the most after Chronicles of like Chronicles of Narnia were just sort of almost like a perennial uh-huh. read for me. It just kept right. going back over and over, you know, and yeah, and same. Never got tired of him, and and it was the same way with John Christopher. Like I could, there were some of his books that I could read and reread, and you know. So as a kid, he was really influential. I think as an adult, probably my one of my my favorite fiction writers is Chaim Potok, mm-hmm. who you know does a lot about culture culture confrontation or like worlds colliding kinds of things, even within the, the Jewish community of yeah. Orthodox, non-Orthodox and, and right. his protagonists are quite often just a little bit older than Everett. And, you know, one of, I think his, his main Reuven in, in the chosen and the promise is, is just a ordinary kid who's just trying to make sense of, has this really brilliant friend. And so there's probably some of that, that was a, he he was a really impactful author for me when I got into college and and I still just really admire his work. You know, there are some theological writers that I, I, I loved. I I it just gave me so much joy to be able to write in PT Forsyth's mother because he hmm. he he was from the eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds and and just has been I, I think his writing is is absolutely brilliant and his i love his theology as well but but it was (laughs) it was just really fun to be able to weave him into my fiction world because he's been so influential for me just in my life so so that was kind of fun but i don't know i mean i do read a lot now of children's literature Uh um, and and you know i i just because i'm trying to just saturate myself in this in this field that I'm writing right. in now and so you know I it's it's a lot of times not necessarily it's it's fun and a lot of times it's not necessarily literarily all that substantial you know so so I I, I will just read the pure fun stuff all the time with yeah that. but yeah. It, it really it really helps with beginning to get a sense of how to do the pacing or what actually works for kids and adults. And so, yeah, I really love Owen Colfer's stuff and, and he'll, he'll kind of cross over, do stuff for both kids and, and adults. I don't know. Lots, lots, lots of people. Yeah. Very cool. You talked about a little girl named Madeline. 
oh right who, right who called a particular way that they travel you know a wrinkles in 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 time which which i was so excited about because so much where it didn't remind me of sort of a charles williams plot it reminded me and and to an extent huh. like they have a lot in common yeah yeah but it reminded me of of the madeline lingle you know especially wrinkle in time right where yeah. where you have this this you know kid who kind of doubts themselves right yeah going off and trying to rescue their father from these forces that are very like the blotters right and who who just want to destroy things right or yeah yeah uh, so i i thought that was uh, i had to figure out how to work her in because the book hadn't come out you know so i had Mm -hmm. to go okay i've got to i've got to make this little retro and have her have had this idea as a kid because right she was she was post the storyline time so yeah yeah uh, yeah that was that was uh, was super fun so okay this book is about it's set in the past right it's set in the in the 1950s when most people to be creative are still taking out a pen and right you know, writing down their ideas with a pen whether it's music or whether it's uh, poetry or 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 you know occasionally drawing things or, or whatever in you know 2020 it's not 2020 anymore i'm traumatized 2022 if i want to be creative sometimes i'll take out a pen and that's nice. yeah yeah but most of the time i will type on a laptop or you know iphone or something like that so if you're positing within this world if you're positing yeah, yeah. this sort of ink right as as being like the engine of all great creativity or you know of 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 most authors what happens then in the 21st century within your world right that is a really good question i think i would have to i'd have to say that there would be some way to to get some toner that had ink in it or something Yeah. yeah you know i did i did think when I first started writing this book that wouldn't it be cool to like write it all out by hand rather than yeah on a typewriter you know and so and I even I even got a little fountain pen you know I was gonna really try to do it old school and I think I I I made it maybe one page in before (laughs) I gave up that endeavor it is such a different process though I mean like it it in some ways, it is richer for me when I handwrite. It just for takes sure. a long time. Um, yeah, but 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 yeah, I th- I, th- I thought that was thing and potentially a problem for when the Inklings hit the twenty first century. Yes, if they if they ever will. But uh, but but yeah, it's 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 uh, it it does get to though, and 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 kind of the you know the the main like kind of metaphor of your book. It does get to really the value of of creativity, of taking time over creativity, of not d- just kind of like, you know, mm. because of your inner editor throwing away everything you do because you mm. don't think it's any good. Um, and, uh, you know, it's in some ways, like handwriting for me can be a way of getting around that and, yeah. and, and engaging more deeply. In general, you know, you're you're kind of positing that there's this sort of uh, ink, capital I ink, right? That's mm-hmm, that's sort of behind mm-hmm. 
all creativity and the ink is inherently good. Do you view all sort of creative endeavors then like by any artists or any writers as being inherently good as being like, so mm. like, like the, the Bloomsbury group, for example, who are like very much night and day ideologically opposed to anything the Inklings were for. Right. 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 Or, you know, some other avant-garde group of the, of the, you know, twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, would they also have been inklings? Is, is there is there some sort of a nefarious Slytherin-like you uh, know, alternate group of artists who are working with the blotters, or 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 would you just say no? Like Augustine says that all things are good things, right? They're just kind of right. like twisted, and and therefore to some extent, all artists, all creatives participate in this you know inherently positive thing. Yeah. Well, I think I think you know it was interesting that you mentioned Augustine because I think that that whole concept of all truth, God's truth, you know, there is a sense in which ultimately, and now we're now we're moving out of the book and into more you know life life view or whatever. But you know, I I think I would hold that you know every good and perfect gift is from above, and if it's good. If it's good creativity, ultimately it has the same source and, and that there are things inherent. If, if it's true that we all bear the Imago Dei, then, then even sometimes when our creativity gets twisted up, there's, there's still an element of beauty to it that can be traced back to the same source but but this is a fiction book so in the in the world of ink yeah i i think i think there is a great there's there's more inklings than the little band you know mm -hmm. and i mm -hmm. uh but but i think at least what the way that the that that ronald posits it out there is that that ink ink can't ultimately be used for anything other than good. And so if if it could fall within that category or accomplish some some good ultimately, then I I think he would maybe say there was room for them. I think there there could be something to celebrate if if it is ink sourced. Yeah. Yeah, that's really orthodox, right? That's really and even the idea of of the blotters, right? That they their creation is through the ink and yet mm. they're trying to mm. destroy it right how yeah. how parallel that is to mm. people who who try to do evil right or mm. or angels right who try to do evil right mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. who who are really just striking at the very foundation of their being yeah because they want to be able to have some sort of existence that is um not that is independent of the very thing mm -hmm. that they're dependent on for right right for right instance, right and and i i think that that works so well and then the idea mm -hmm. that yes you know creativity is is inherently good and ultimately the evil you know and, and this, is, this has been the theme time and time and time again as we've explored various works of the inklings right ultimately evil will by its very nature defeat itself well and, and there's uh, and i don't know if it was Augustine or someone else who, you know, had the, the theory of 
evil being that it wasn't wasn't a separate thing it was the mm -hmm. absence of the good yeah and you know so so it's not a created thing it's the it's the lack of it almost right. or the so yeah. yeah 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 which that being said i still really like gargoyles Thanks for having me on. It was super fun to just dive deep and and have hear somebody else interpret it as a work. It's just good for me to hear outside perspective on this level of analysis that it's super fun. Oh, um, man, thanks so much for coming on. This is this yeah, is a, a, a real treat and an honor. I I have enjoyed it and I hope your readers enjoy it and what i tell people is it it just was so much fun writing it i i hope it's fun to to read it because you know i had so many rounds of editing and and i thought i thought each time when i was coming back that oh this is gonna be such a pain or i'm gonna you know just it's gonna be like pulling teeth or and every time it just was so much fun i i just yeah. thoroughly enjoyed the process and and it's been that way to even going back into revisit it in book two so yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah i hope i hope readers enjoy it enough to stick around and see what else happens yeah yeah and and again listeners the book is called the inkwell chronicles the ink of elspeth it's by jd peabody jd where can they find you and where can they buy a copy yeah the book is pretty much available wherever you buy books probably every you know, everybody goes to Amazon. You mm -hmm. can go to you can go to my website, jdpbody.com, or yeah, pretty much wherever you like to buy books. And there is a there's a hidden page on my website called and it's jdpbody.com slash invisible that has some of the Easter eggs if they after they've read it, if they want to go back and oh fun and see some of the things or you know, see what pieces were maybe historic references it's there but oh that's i just looked it up it's super cool i'm gonna read it after this you hit a um, lot of the things that were on there so very cool very cool all right well well jd Peabody, thank you again so much for for coming on and listeners please do check out the inkwell chronicles it's it's a really fun ride and everything jd is saying about how much fun it was to write makes it a just a thrill to 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 read so so thank you again and uh, yeah i will see you all next time full of joy and scheduled on the decent plan with here an addict of Tolkien there a Charles Williams fan <laughs>